of the industry. I'm your host, Kip Saunders. With me, as always, my producer, engineer, dancer. How are you doing, Dan? Uh, pretty good this time. Much, much, much better. Much better. We're yes. improving. Yeah. <laughs> Amazingly, there's a virus going around, and you're getting better. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we have uh, our first, um, what we would consider in the industry, uh, the back of house um, guest today, James Frangos. Uh, we're going to get to him in a bit. Um, I just want to start off by saying uh, you can definitely go back into the archives and to our first two episodes. First episode, Dan Collins from Sugar Run. Second episode, Jess Sharkey, currently working at Public, um, but worked in many different places as well. And working at Consulate College as well. That's right, as a teacher. Um, so uh, I just wanted to kick this off by saying, obviously, these are crazy times we're living in right now. Uh, everyone's sequestered, isolated. I uh, just wanted to take a time out to talk about how this affects people in the industry. The name of the podcast is The Industry. So um, this is a terrible time for everybody involved in our, in our profession. We, we're all out of work. We are those who own businesses like myself and our guest today, James, uh, self-employed people who have no income, no way to pay our employees. I had a terrible day where I had to lay off all my staff. Uh, that's just the, these are people you feel responsible for. It's, it's a very difficult thing to do. Um, I'm not. We're not looking for any extra sympathy. Everybody's going through a lot of terrible shit right now. I just want to say uh, we are all going to come through this on the other side, and hopefully we'll all be here for you to still be around when you want to eat and drink. Um, when we are all feeling safe enough to go out in public again, and. There are certain ways that you can help us out. Um, I know most places are either if, if you places that are cheaply restaurants are still doing takeout. If you if you are in a financial position to help those people out, I encourage you to do so. Also, I, for us specifically, we're definitely more in the bar region at Sugar Run here. Um, you can help us out by buying gift certificates. Uh, and how you do that is an e-transfer to info at sugarrun.ca um, and leave your address information in the notes, we'll mail you some gift certificates. I think a lot of places are doing this. I can just tell you this really, really helps because the, when we come out to the other side of this, you'll be able to cash in those gift certificates at the places you love to go to. For us right now, there we have no income and there are and people aren't working and there are bills still to be paid that don't stop. So, the, what is that email address one more time? It's uh, info at sugarrun.ca. Uh, like I said, leave all your specifics in the notes section and we will mail you out gift certificates. That's, uh, again, I, I'm, this is not a, 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 a begging way for sympathy. I'm just saying this is the way you can help out not just us but several places are doing the same thing i think most places if you just check out their social media pages they will tell you how to help them out um now that all of that being said the industry podcast is a way for us to take a break from all of this we're all at home we have nothing to do this should be something to listen to that's fun and not talking about this pandemic that we're all living through so we'll probably touch on it later in the podcast because james also has a business that he is trying to run um, but uh, I just wanted to lead off with saying that and, and, and speaking on behalf of everyone in this business, thank you for all of your support. 
through these times, those who have been able to do it. So, let's move on. Let's not spend this whole podcast talking about the negative situation that we're all living in. Let me introduce our guests for this episode of the Industry Podcast. It's James Frangos. How you doing, James? I'm doing well. How you doing, Kip? Thanks so much for having me on. Dan, always a pleasure, my friend. Good to see you again, bud. Always, always. Um, okay, so James, as I mentioned earlier, is uh, what a member of what we call the back of the house in the industry, um, meaning that he is as only solely worked in the kitchen, correct? Uh, correct. I had a brief stint in the front of the house many, many moons ago in Toronto, but... That sounds scary as fuck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it did not go well. It did not go well. Hence, it shuttled me to the back where, you know, I feel like I have um, found my calling, if you will, because the front of the house was not it. Okay, so that was in Toronto. You grew up in Kitchener. Yeah, I was born in Toronto. I moved here when I was young with my mom, when my parents separated. Uh, went back and worked in Toronto where my dad was working at the time. It was a steakhouse in North York. Uh, props to David Duncan House, uh, but this would have been in the mid '90s. Did that for maybe three months, and then said, "Fuck that." Sorry yeah. if I can swear or not, but you can swear. It's all good. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm listening to explicit content, so for the F-bombs. Do you have to get one of those warning labels, like in the Reagan '80s? Pretty much. There's a, there's a big check mark that says, is this explicit content? No, is that right? Yeah. I don't know. No. Okay, so uh, then you come back to Kitchener, um, and at that point you decide that this is, that you're going to work in the back of the house. Actually, no, not exactly at that point. Like, I was still in high school at this time, so I just went back and stayed with my dad a little bit in North York. Uh, did this just as a job to make some extra money. Came back, I finished high school in Kitchener, then I went out to London, uh, went to Fanshawe for some generic business marketing Fanshawe thing, which just turned into a gong show of what everyone does at Fanshawe. Right. Um, so when... <laughs> Tor- torch police cars. Yeah, basically like torch that. police cars, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Bomb homes, really whatever the way the wind is blowing that day. Um, so came back from Fanshawe, I was like, I don't really know what I'm going to do with my life. And my mom at the time was an instructor at Conestoga. And I'd always enjoyed, you know, making Uncle Ben's pasta and I'd roast some peppers and, you know, throw them in my sidekicks and things like that, right? She's like, you know, you enjoy cooking. We have a culinary program here at Conestoga College. Why don't you check it out? I mean, what the fuck else are you doing? So I'm like, okay, yeah, that sounds good, right? So I went and checked it out. Uh, It was a two-year program, finished it, really enjoyed it. I uh, enjoyed the cooking aspect of it, but it never actually worked in a professional kitchen at that point. Uh, so when I graduated... Okay, I, I, I don't want to, not to... Well, I do want to interrupt you. I'm just going to yep. interrupt you. Um, so when you say you... So you found something you enjoyed doing. Yep. What was it about it that you enjoyed? Uh, I think just the creativity about it, like it's all, it's it's sort of limitless. Like, yeah. I'd like to consider myself a bit of an artist, but I have no artistic talent whatsoever. Right. So I just sort of like the freedom and the adaptability that you could you could go with in the in the food world. Right. I, I kind of figured that's what you're going to say because I know you a little well. Um, the and and I and then it's the same works at the front of the house when you're crafting cocktails or whatever, but not in the same level as you get in the kitchen. The kitchen there is real creativity and art to be done so like you said you're throwing extra shit in your sidekicks or whatever and somehow that turns into like oh like there is a creativity associated with that so what do you learn at that in that program though that helps uh spark that creativity 
Uh, in that program specifically, this is a long time ago, so it's definitely evolved since I was there. Um, basically, it just gives you the structure on cooking. Right. So you learn how to make, you know, mother sauces, and you learn knife skills, and you learn... What's a mother sauce? A mother sauce, uh, there's five basic mother sauces. So an example would be like a tomato sauce, or a um, bechamel sauce. Okay. Um, so they're the... in classical structured French cuisine, they're the five sauces that would always be on hand that their saucier, which is the guy who manages the sauces in professional brigade kitchens... Um, would then make derivative sauces out of. Okay. So, for example, if I have a bechamel sauce, I might add some, you know, finely chopped tarragon and some lemon juice, and that would be, become a different sauce. And then and it, so, it, it structures down. And right? so, at that point in your development, that's what you're learning at this very rudimentary course, right? That con- yeah. That yeah. Uh, okay. So then, from uh, Conestoga, 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 yeah. sorry. Uh, and then from so from there. You graduate from this program, yep. two years, and then it, are you now, is, is this the point where you decided that this is what you're going to do with your life, or was it still just a flight of fancy at this point? Um, really, I was so interested in partying at this point yeah. in my life. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'll be 100% honest with you. Yeah. All I cared about was socializing, hanging out with my homies, meeting girls. All it was all in on the social aspect of life. Right. So what I found and that's was changed how not 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 a ton, not a ton to be honest with you, not a ton. Oh, yeah. um, but what it did was it gave me the opportunity to have some uh, accredited skills that yeah. I could transfer to a workplace. Something you can put on your resume. Exactly. Yeah, I have some on a resume. Hire me up now. I in retrospect, I definitely didn't need to go to culinary school to get a job in restaurants. I right. could have just like walked in. You learn that later. It's like we we've had this conversation with previous guess about the Friday house where it's like going to bartending school it's like right. seems a good idea at the time yeah. then you realize oh I could have just got that on the job 100% right? right 100% but I, it did give me a leg up on some other people when who I didn't s- have it. who didn't have it exactly right they might have had more practical experience where I had more um, technical experience gotcha. okay so then you graduate and do you go right into a job in I did the yeah. yeah I did I did I was uh, I think I was unemployed when I graduated. It was a full-time gig. I was living at home, um, graduated, and then got a job at a place that's now defunct called Yukiko's in Waterloo. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Yukiko's. I used to live right around the corner from there, yep. actually. Um, then you used to hang out that house while Park and Norman. It's where... Um, an excellent restaurant. Oh, where there's uh, Red House. Shout out to Red House for sure. Yeah, excellent Yukiko's restaurant. Yeah. Um, so you, uh, Yukiko's used to be there. I used to live right around the corner at Park and Norman. I used to eat there all the time. But this is before I knew you, so I don't yeah. know if you were working there when I was frequently there. This would have been in... Well, to put this in perspective, my very first day of culinary school would have been September 11th. Oh, okay. So, yeah, right? <laughs> Ominous. <laughs> Ominous, ironic, whatever you want to say. Uh, so, two years after did that. Did you so survive the planes? I, I did survive the planes, yeah, somehow. Somehow. Made it through. Made it through. Okay. Uh, not to make light of any of that type of situation. Um, so, it would have been late 2003, early 2004. Okay. So, I, I was definitely later to the game. Like, I would have been in my... You know, earlyish twenties at that point when I started working in kitchens. Okay, and so Yukiko's, uh, to my recollection, was kind of it, it was almost like a cafe a little bit, a little bit. Uh, but they had they did a lot of funky shit. I know, like I'm a vegetarian. They had a lot an amazing array of vegetarian food at that point when there wasn't a lot 
in this town. Yeah, they were definitely progressive on the vegetarian front and progressive on the cuisine front. At that point in Kitchener-Waterloo, it was very meat and potatoes, yeah. heavy town, right? No one was doing anything interesting. The idea of something like chipotle peppers or balsamic vinegar even was like absolutely unheard of. <laughs> so uh, they were on the forefront of what they were doing culinarily wise. And who was the head chef there? I think it was Yukiko herself. Yeah. Because it was a husband-wife team. Uh, Yukiko and I can't remember her husband's name. I want to say Tom. Sorry if you're listening. <laughs> Sorry if you're listening to this Tom uh, ish, maybe. Um, but she sort of oversaw everything. But at the time, they didn't really have a chef. Now, that being said, I was there for maybe eight months and they went through numerous head chefs in that time. But right. initially, I'm pretty sure it was just Yukiko who was, uh, who was running the show. And what do you feel like? Okay, so you're just out of college. You just like, like, you've learned the basics yep. essentially at this point. Um, what did you learn working there that you didn't have? What, what skills did you learn there that you didn't have before? Uh, I think what a lot of people will find when they start physically working in restaurants as opposed to actually work, actually just going to school and learning about it, like I'm sure it's in many, many industries, is there's things you just don't learn in school, right? right. And the big one for working in back of the house is stress management, yes. organization, you know, cleanliness. Time management, those types of things, right? right? It's the same with the front of the house. Yeah. That's why these yeah. houses are so similar, but it, it's just what I find the difference between the front of the house and the back of the house. It's almost the same job, uh, with, with, based on the, the criteria you're just referring to. The difference is the types of personalities that do it. Right. Yeah, like the, the people who tend to work in the back of the house, and this is not obviously exceptions, not universal, but people who work in the back of the house tend to be less. Um, gregarious, or uh, and I don't know, maybe the front of the house lends itself because you have to do it. Is a, like more of a bullshit artist, like to absolutely, to, yeah. You know what I mean? Whereas yeah. the, most of the people I work in the back of the house don't have time for that shit, no. right? Like, no, yeah, yeah. No. They just want to get about their job and get the get it done. Yeah, yeah, like. Um, what I found was working with a lot of like newer people at that time, there's some people who would come in and they would cook you the most delicious dish in the world, presented wonderfully, everything, you know, their knife skills were on point, everything was great. But when, you know, shit hit the fan and you had 15 orders, 20 orders coming yeah. in at a time, couldn't handle it and they quit immediately, right? I'm sure you see it on the bartending end too. It's like, oh, right. this guy makes a fantastic sidecar, right? But he's got three orders coming up and he's, he's on the floor because he has no idea what to do, exactly, right? Exactly, exactly. And, and, and the, the people who become the best of the profession are the people who can do both, who yeah. can work at a high level of speed and efficiency, but also take the care and craftsmanship and creativity that goes into presenting an amazing product. Yeah. Right? So it works both ways from a house back out. Yeah. Okay, so from Yukiko's, you go to... From Yukiko's, I went to work at a place called Charbreeze. Oh, one of my all-time yeah. favorite forgotten restaurants. Local oh, landmark. Yeah. 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 I yeah. miss that restaurant so much. Yeah, it was I great. I tell you that. Another one that was on the forefront of really... You actually had a pretty charred first couple spots. In 100%, yeah. Especially in this town where... Yep. I, there was like a lag. Like now, it's a wonderful town to work in, creativity-wise. Uh, there's so many great restaurants to go to. Um, back then, it was like Kelsey's then. in Montana's. Right? Yeah, I mean, Montana's existed at that point, right? I looked at Kelsey's back then. <laughs> <laughs> All downhill from there. And somehow, and somehow they're still open. Yeah, yeah studying. Oh, barely. <laughs> Well, we all love Kelsey's. We love Kelsey's around here. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, Charmy's was enough, like, what I, uh, 
I, well, at the time, was dating a vegetarian as well, and like it was one of the few places, like for a fine dining style experience, it was they had a, an actual full-on vegetarian menu, like that you could request. That was a new thing in town at that time. I think maybe Bemas had that. Mm-hmm. Very few places had that, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, and and the food was and the seasonal menu that was kind of a new thing in town at the time. Now everybody does shit like that. But like and of course, larger cities have been doing that forever. We come from a slightly smaller, or we live in a slightly smaller town. Um, there's a little bit of a lag in catch up with that. Sharpie is one of those restaurants where. They they were almost on the forefront of that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Certainly in the in the local scene. Like. Yeah. Um, what I learned at Yukiko's was you know pretty basic entry level kind of restaurant stuff, but Charbreeze is definitely a place that I look back on fondly, where I learned a ton. Like at this point, these guys were making their own ice cream, like yeah. you know fresh pasta, like everything was made in house, which at the time was just unheard of. So going into that kitchen and. Uh, you know, I'm steaming, you know, lobster and, you know, mussels and champagne with saffron and, you know, all kinds of things. I don't experience for you. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And I definitely, definitely learned a lot there. Like Charmaine and Charlie, uh, shout out to those two. Yeah, they, lovely people. Wonderful people. Yeah, great. They ran uh, they ran an ex- excellent, like, restaurant that was on the forefront of the Kitchener Waterloo dining scene. And I was, I'm really honored and proud to say that I was part of that. That's cool. when, yeah, when they had that. I agree with you, man. Like, I, I, I can't even tell you that. I was like, when that when that place had to shut down, I was heartbroken. Like, right. Was, what, do you know, it's interesting, we don't talk about this that often on this show, and like, uh, we're not trying to, to well, this the whole show is about divulging trade secrets, but do you, what was the reasoning behind that close down of that place? I can't remember. I'm pretty sure that Charlie and Charmaine, like, I don't know, this is like they a libel thing. Up, like, they? yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they split up. Um, at that point, I think rents were increasing. Once the first lease ran out. Yeah, this also would have been around the financial crisis time, oh, 2008. Yeah, 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 so yeah. I'm sure that played a part in well, it. Less harbinger for now. Yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. Less people going out, like we're, we're echoing that shadow in uh, the year 2020, yeah. right? So I think just a multitude of reasons. And, and the restaurant itself had sort of run its course, like, uh, Charmaine and Charlie had done what they had wanted to do. They probably just felt like they were uh, becoming a little flaccid, for lack of a better term. And, uh, Story of my life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and they, they decided to move on. You know, they decided to cash out and uh, go on to other things. Okay, uh, so now I don't know the exact um, area when this started happening, but at some point you go back to school, right? It would now... No, 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 I didn't did, go back to school. Did you do so? Well, what's the red paper? Oh, Red Seal. Red, red Seal. Seal. Sorry. Yeah. That to me? Uh, so, Red Seal is just uh, basically it's an accreditation that uh, is offered by the uh, the government. So, there's a provincial level one and then there's a federal level one. The provincial level one is basically what you need to do is have accrued a certain amount of hours working in your specific field, get these hours signed off on. Under. Under a like a Red Seal chef, right? right? It's 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 basically it's a tradesman paper. So right. you can have a Red Seal plumber, or a Red Seal electrician, sure. carpenter. Like when someone gets their ticket, 
right? It's basically getting your ticket and cooking. Now the difference is it's legally required for you to have your ticket to be a you know a gas fitter or whatever it might be, so you can hang tags. Whereas in the culinary industry, it's not required unless you want to work at uh, a hospital or a potentially university, or long-term care facility, a government-funded uh, or accredited place. Then you must have it. Then you must have it. Yeah, uh, there are certain places that have strict requirements for you to have it. But for me to go and work at you know Joe Bob's Roadhouse, it, it makes no difference whatsoever if you have it. Oh, gotcha. Okay. All right. So from there, you do you work at Salute after Charbonne? I worked at Salute after no after Charbonne's I. Worked went to maybe Salute. I can't remember, man. I've had a lot of jobs, bro. Yeah, um, I know. That's why we can't go through all of them. Yeah, no, no, no. So, yeah, I either went and worked, because I I got my Red Seal after I worked with uh, Charmaine, because she had helped me get it. Um, so I must have gone to Salute briefly after that, and then I got into some retirement homes and long-term care facilities. Okay, so Salute is an interesting restaurant too, because I also worked there for a stretch. Um, when that first place first opened, it was opened by a chef, and uh, I don't need to say their names right now in case they don't want to be involved in this, but um, a good friend of mine who uh, owns a, owned a restaurant supply company, um, a good friend of mine now, he was not a friend of mine when I first started working there, uh, the, and a chef, and they were old high school buddies, I believe, um, and they opened that restaurant together, essentially, the the guy who was the chef was constantly like, we should own a restaurant, we should own a restaurant. The guy who owned the restaurant supply company was like, I don't know anything about opening a restaurant, I don't know anything about a restaurant. It was just back and forth forever. And he was like, yeah, but you got all the equipment, blah, 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 whatever. And then they finally, he finally warmed down, they decided to open a restaurant. Uh, when I got there, I had just come off a, a stint of trying to like work in the real world. For a little bit, I, like, I'm like enough of this. I'm gonna fucking, I like I can't work in bars and restaurants for the rest of my life. Like this is ridiculous. Like everything my parents or anyone's parents, not mine specifically, told you. Like this is not a career, right? Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Sure. Uh, um, do you? Uh, so all these things that like you would heard. So I'm like, okay, I'm gonna give my shot. I, the, the woman I was dating at the time, we took off. We went to fucking Greece for like a few months. Came back. We're we're gonna get some, get ourselves some real fucking jobs here. And um, <laughs> we're gonna be we're gonna be grown up, right? Because yeah, uh, only only grown ups don't work right. in this industry, right? That's right. Uh, exactly. Yeah. The myth. Yeah, yeah. Right. So I came back and I was like, well, because I've said this on several other podcasts that we've done, well, several, we've only done two, but the, on the other podcast where it's like, this was what was drilled into us with people in our age group, was like, this is not a real job. This is not a career. This is not something you can do for the rest of your life. This is a job you do while you figure out what you're going to do for the rest right. of your life. Right? right. So I came back and I was like, okay. I'm gonna get me a real job. So I worked at Rogers for like two years. My condolences. Yeah, My condolences. Was the worst fucking thing I ever did. For I remember, sure. I remember the one day I was got in the shower to go to work and I was like hyperventilating because I didn't want to go there. And I was like, that's it, I'm I'm an idiot. I gotta go back to doing what I was doing. So then at that point I got this job at Salute and they were like lost 
with regards to how to run the front of the house. And this is something I've been doing my whole life up to this point, except for this two-year hiccup. And so I came in. Uh, our mutual friend, Brian McCord, who probably hired you there. Yep, he did. He did. Uh, was the sous chef underneath uh, this other chef who had started the business with the restaurant supply company guy. Uh, and the other, those two guys weren't really around. Like, well, I mean, they were around, but they weren't, like, they weren't, well, the chef actually took off and went out west, and it was just the three of us, and the one guy, I think he would even admit this, didn't really know the business. Yep. Like, he knew the restaurant supply business, like, he knew how to sell you a beer fridge or a walk-in cooler, but he didn't know how to run a restaurant. And why should he? Exactly, well, exactly right? No, yeah. he, didn't, he didn't even want to do it. Yeah. Like, so I was essentially running the front of the house for him, and Brian was essentially running the back of the house. And it was, but but doing, I think we did a good job. Like we we did good work there. We made that into a pretty decent Italian style restaurant. Certainly, right? yeah, for this In area. Downtown. Yeah, and so that was a long preamble to get back to you starting to work there, and you probably were working under Brian. Yep. Yeah. So tell me what he taught you. Uh, well, yeah, I went in there just sort of on a whim. I didn't know Brian at the time. He was looking for a sous chef. I like the idea of having like a chef title on my resume. And I was gone by this point. Yeah, you were gone. I, I had no idea who you were at this point, so I'm not sure when you were gone. And uh, the owners who you would have worked under, were gone too. Were, they were still there, but they were gone within a few weeks. And then uh, of me being there. A different guy bought it. A different guy bought it. A different guy and his girlfriend bought it, and then they started running it. And yeah, I was working with Brian, and obviously he's an immensely talented chef. He's a yeah. great guy. I consider him one of my best friends. Yeah. Um, so learned a lot with him. Uh, you know, we, we both have mad love for Brian. Of course, yeah, still do to this day. You know what I mean? Shout out to Brian McCourt, um, DJ Vandal. That's right. And he and I used to DJ together. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I was there for probably about a year-ish, maybe. Brian left after about six months to Greener Pastures. I stuck around because that gave me a chef position on my resume. Uh, but I found that at that point, it was just too much for me. Um, dealing with um, sort of the ins and outs. Like, I had some staffing issues and incredibly long days and was just... I wasn't ready for the pressure of running that, certainly with uh, a very lackluster support team around me at that time. Let me ask you this too. Now, uh, because this is something I've always been a little bit fascinated by in this business with the whole back of house, moving up the ladder to like chef, to executive chef, to like whatever, they keep just inventing new titles for this. Just sure, the same, they do the same thing in the front of the house. Yep. But, um, there's a point where your job becomes more about the paperwork than it does about being on the line and creating food, right? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So is that what you felt? And like, t talk to me about that. Like, okay, well, um, you're talking about like chef, executive chef. So the basic structure of it is you start out as just like a, a, maybe a dishwasher, but then you move into line cook, right? Huh. And a line cook is the guy who's back there cooking your steak, and he's making your salad, or he's you know sauteing the shrimp for your pasta, whatever it might be. So once you get that down, you become then a sous chef. So a sous chef will report directly to the chef, but also be the boss of the line cooks. Larger operations would have sous chefs for each specific 
um, area, right? So there might be like a sous chef for like the grill area, a sous chef for the salad area, a sous chef for the pastry area, all reporting directly to the chef. Um, then you would go from being a sous chef to being a chef where you would then look after a restaurant. Now the term executive chef and chef, it's they are two different things. An executive chef generally looks after multiple locations. Right. Where a chef just focuses on the one location. Correct. Right. So, like, so, yeah, so like there's a chef at your local Montana's. Right. Every local Montana's would have their chef or their kitchen manager, what they would call it, right? However, there's an executive chef for the Kara group or whoever owns Montana's these days who then dispatches his knowledge and his sort of right. you know power over the local chefs everywhere, right? Okay. So that's that's sort of the difference there. Right. So, uh, but for you personally, moving up the ladder towards the even just being the chef of one location, did you find that you were more immersed in like the nonsense and the paperwork and the day to day than you were in like creating and mm. being on the line or no? It, it all that, it, that's more executive chef. Yeah. No. Well, no. That all entirely depends on the restaurant that you're currently working at, right? What ultimately means to be a chef at a small restaurant is that the buck stops with you. Right. So if you're the chef there and all your staff quits and you know your food costs us through the roof and no one's coming through the door, it's your problem. Yeah, right? it's, like, it's your problem. It's, it's being in front of the house manager at a um, at a place at any place, and I've been that person. I've been the owner, so I've been on both sides of this. Where it's like I've been the front of the house manager, like it was a sleep day or whatever. Uh, where the, the, essentially the owner at one point just comes to you and is like, "Look, I don't want," and I've done this as an owner to people who are been my managers as well. Like you get to a point where you're just like, look, I don't have time to fucking go to every single person and be like, you fucked up, you fucked up, you fucked up. I'm only gonna get mad at you now. Yeah. So shit if, rolls downhill. That's yeah. it's it that, works. that's probably the same as middle management in yeah. any industry. In Everything. World, right? Yeah. So yeah. Okay. Uh, so from Salute, uh, and what? So can you actually before we leave Salute? We're, we're both big fans of Brian. What, what do you feel like Brian taught you specifically that you didn't know already? Uh, Brian, well, his culinary knowledge is, you know, w without bounds. He's, you know, he's very knowledgeable, he's very passionate, but he was the first guy to sort of show me, like, about food costing and, hey, we need to make some cash off of this, you know, steak scrap or whatever we have here. So we need to grind that down. Let's make meatballs. And so he really opened my eyes to, like, you know, utilizing all possible, uh, you know, produce, protein, whatever you have left. Let's turn this stuff that other people would think is not any good into something really special. And let's no turn, some, let's no turn some cash on it. You know what I mean? Well, let's turn I, some cash on it, which is an absolutely like... I think that's a cool thing to do in in any aspect of life as well. But like, that's exactly first of all, yeah. Monetarily, does it make sense? Of course. Like, you don't want to have waste of product from a financial situation, but it's also like from an environmental situation. Like, let's reuse, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, like, absolutely, and, absolutely. And, and you can make great things out of stuff that you were about to. That may, may not be on your menu, make a special out of it. Yep. And that's, that's all I'll add to that point is it really opens up uh, the floodgates of creativity. If you know, you give some guy, like, here's, you know, some chicken legs and some celery and some stock and I don't know, a lot of black pepper that we need to use up, whatever it might be, make something cool out of this, right? right. So that really opens him up 
and it empowers him or her, whoever it might be, to utilize his skills, make those specials, and give him that boost of confidence, or give them that boost of confidence that they need to progress their own, um, you know, flavor profiles and tasting notes and different things that make them become a better chef. It's ultimately. the same thing that Jimmy Henderson with the experience. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> hey, hey, now backtracking a little bit, when you were at Conestoga. Did they just teach you essentially just straight cooking versus that kind of yes, approach? Yeah, so Conestoga when I was there, again, I can't speak to it now, like it was so long ago, yeah. but it, they basically taught us like, these this are basic sauce techniques, this is right? how you roast, this is how you braise, this is how you oh, pan right. sear. So any term you hear, uh, like in the culinary world, nappe and different things like that, they taught you how to do that, oh, right? Okay. So if you're making dishes there, it wasn't so much like, um, like black box situation where it's like come up with something cool out of all this it was we're going to make a you know um, I don't know chicken pie art or whatever it might be right but like it was always something classical that you were making and you learn the structures oh, and you okay. learn those techniques in making these classical dishes so right the fundamentals yeah season the protein braise the protein with aromatics make a mirepoix fawn maillard like all these like buzzy terms you just learned what all those were but your ultimate goal was just to make this dish that has been made 10 million times since, you know, 1812 yeah. or whatever it might have been, right? Yeah. Okay, so from Salute, you go to work at some retirement home. I did, yeah. Yeah, so tell me about that experience, because I've had a lot of friends who have done that same thing. I know it's, the, the, from my perspective, what I understand is it's a great steady paycheck, it's pretty easy going, you, you get you get some benefits involved in that? Yeah. yeah, so my whole reasoning behind it was my girlfriend, who then became my wife at the time, we had just bought our first home. Um, so I needed something with steadier hours to do renovations and just kind of be around. So right. the lure of it for me was... Not working late nights. Not working late nights, drastically better money, stability. You know, I'm not going to go and someone's going to like cut me halfway through my shift. Right. You know what I mean? Like right. I knew exactly what I was making all the time and it was four times as much as I was making in a regular kitchen somewhere sure. in Waterloo or Kitchener, right? Uh, so yeah, I went into working at a... Uh, assisted living center in Waterloo where it was basically just a, like a restaurant uh, you made you made meals for people they paid for them so it was just like the families and friends of residents that came in but it was it was normal stuff like they had beef tenderloin and sole and you know different pastas and stuff on the menu pretty early like yeah. you're out of there at oh yeah. yeah that's right yeah that's right you know, your, your dinner hour is like 3.15 to 4.20 right <laughs> then these guys are home they're in bed it's game over yes. uh, how, do I, how do I get in one of these places <laughs> soon my friend soon yeah. sooner than you think actually. yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. thanks man uh, <laughs> <laughs> and lots of single ladies there as well, Dan. So it's, it's, yeah, it's working out. It's working out. Uh, so, yeah. I gambling? Yeah, gambling. Bingo. Yeah, live shows, right? Juice machines. Just get juice anytime you want out of a machine. It's amazing. Um, so the pros and cons in that situation, one was obviously, you know, the pay was good. There was benefits. They had a pension plan where they, like, uh, matched, like, pension contributions. So, like, stuff that's just unheard of in restaurants. Right. Um, but then there's a downside to it is you're, it's not a lot of creativity. You're definitely not going anywhere in the world of long-term care facilities or restaurants, a, right? Yeah, and you're not learning a whole bunch. 100% I, not. I, I, I'm, I'm teaching them at this point. I think that that's interesting that they talk about for a little bit, though, uh, that we haven't talked about the show before is that I think what a lot of people who don't work in our industry don't actually realize is that we're all working with a safety net here. We don't have 
the majority of places you work don't have benefits. There's certainly no pension contributions. Yeah. There's no like, we've decided to do this job for a living, career as a career as our living, and then you know like shit like this that's going on in the world right now happens. And again, you're working without a net. You're like that fucking acrobat. <laughs> but then someone moved the net when you're walking that tightrope, right? Like, yeah. So, so there is a. I can understand why a, a job like that would 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 have an appeal to it, even if it's not. If, if, even if, in a weird way, it does stifle your creativity a little bit. Yeah, though, uh, what I'll say about the sort of retirement home lifestyle is if you're like a young aspiring chef who wants to be the next Bobby Flay or, you know, the next... Um, Jamie Oliver kind of guy. Jamie Oliver or like Magnus Nielsen or like some famous chef who's really pushing the boundaries of culinary, uh, you know, pushing the boundaries of cuisine and ambiance and that kind of stuff, then it's definitely not the way to go. But if you're someone who just generally likes to cook... And maybe you have a family and a mortgage, or you want to have a family and a mortgage. Like it's definitely a viable route to take. They yeah. they tell me that uh, like retirement homes and golf courses are places where chefs go to die, right? right. So you can look at that one of two ways, <laughs> right? Because it one it does stifle creativity to a fair degree. But two, it likely means that you're at a point in your life where you own a home and you have a family and you have dependents and that's you're, a, and you're a, thinking about retirement, that's right? That's a super fucking interesting way to talk about it, actually, because you're like, yeah, if it's, it's, it's a place that you go to die, great. That's, that's a... That's Perfect. A, yeah. yeah. Mean, Steady I, paycheck, you know, benefits, time off, two weeks vacation every we year. Don't have it's, that. A, it's a real job but that we don't, we don't have, have that, right? Well, and we don't have that at the front of the house. Well, as much as you guys have it in the back of the house, right? There's no, there's no golden parachute retirement job for, like, craft or flair bartender. Certainly you not. You know what I mean? Like, it's just not happening. Like, Hopefully it's in a pizza, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But by the time it's in a pizza, you're way too fucking yeah. old to be working. <laughs> yeah. That movie cocktail, oh, fuck, that fucked us all up. Yeah, no kidding, right? No kidding. <laughs> okay. Uh, so moving from there, you you finished with your what like what what made you decide to get out of the retirement home game? Is that when you got divorced? No, no, <laughs> <laughs> no, no. That was quite some time later. Um, actually, I'm actually still not divorced. So, um, what happened for me personally was this is a I'm not gonna say a microcosm, but it was a. And a, a, more of an anomaly than anything was I was working at a uh, long-term care facility and basically I was making like, I want to say 35 bucks an hour, something like that, which is crazy money f like for anybody working in the back of the house. Um, they had this lamp at the front entrance of this long-term care facility. This is like a palliative care facility, right? So I had this lamp at the front uh, desk and they turn this lamp on every time someone passed away, right? So I worked there for maybe like six months and this lamp was legitimately never turned off. Uh, I think they had just given up turning off this lamp. I like, want to say it was the food. Right? <laughs> Who knows, right? Who knows? But like at this point, like any sort of creativity was out the window. You're literally just working for a paycheck and it's like a, just kind of a morbid atmosphere. Like kind I, of. I give, I give kind enough of. respect to the people that work at these places because it's not a job for everyone, man. It's all doom and gloom all the time. You see some families and they're like 
you know, oh, my father is dying, like, just, like, this is the end of the road, like, just the worst case scenario well, all the I time, right? Way, you can work the snack tray at the funeral home. Huh? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Although you wouldn't get to eat those delicious egg salad sandwiches that they provide, right? Mm, love those guys. Yeah, yeah. White yeah. bread, butter, egg salad. So oh, so if they're cutting you a thing. Yeah, yeah. Do they take the care to put the knuckles in? Oh, <laughs> no, no, no. Cut, cut the crust off. Yes, too. always the crust cut off. Yeah. So at that point, I'm like, look, I need to make a decision for myself. Am I going to continue on on this road where it's sapping, like, the life force out of me? Potentially, yeah. literally, because a lot of people are dying around me. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Or am I going to get back into what got me into cooking in the first place, the creativity, sort of the bond of brothers that you have in kitchens, and I chose to go that route. Right, so then you get to work for the charcoal group in yeah. town here, which includes, like, the restaurants in Kitchener, there's Wildcraft, it's Bauer Kitchen, it's Beer Town, yep. it's Charcoal Steakhouse, Del Dante's, yep. am I missing one? I feel Martinis, like, I feel like there's, all, there's yeah, 17 that we don't even know about that have yeah. opened up earlier today, or potentially while we started this podcast. Yeah. Right? Like, it's the only place that's expanding yeah. the coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> Just flourishing, right? And good for you. I'm yes. Like, good for you people. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, so I, at that point, got back in touch with uh, our old friend Brian McCourt, who at the time was a chef at Bauer Kitchen. Um, it's like, hey, Brian, like, you know, I need a job. Would you have anything for me? And he said, yes, of course, and brought me in as a sous chef. So my experience with charcoal, which I'm sure many of your listeners have an experience with charcoal, I was always management of charcoal. I was never non-management there, right? So I'll just like to say that from the from the get-go. Yeah. Not, not in like a boasterous way, but I know a lot of people have sort of a negative view on working with charcoal, and that tends to come from like the hourly employees that are there, gotcha. right? So I'll just put that out as a disclaimer. Uh, yeah, so I went in there as a sous chef. I was there for probably about two years, give or take. Um, and then I was actually transferred. Uh, the executive chef from Charcoal transferred me over to Beer Town in Waterloo. Right. Uh, at that point, they were looking for a sous chef to sort of like help out their chef. And uh, do you feel like that's pretty much just more back into your wheelhouse? You're not really necessarily learning anything new, but like... Um, at Bauer, no, I would say at Bauer, I definitely learned some new things because it was a heavy managerial, right? So this is a lot of like, you know, costing, right. scheduling, you know, food costs, labor controls, uh, inventory controls, things like that. So this is getting much more into the paperwork aspect right. as opposed to the like, you know, flipping steaks and Which making pizzas aspects. Um, you know, I had, a, I had a decent mix there, right? Because with the sort of labor controls, because I was a salaried employee, is that they would, be, okay, it's a slower day, let's cut everybody who's hourly, keep the salary people on, and they can run, run the ship until it gets busy at night or whatever it was. So there was a huge swath of time where myself and Brian as the chef at the time and the other sous chefs that I was working with were physically like working the line and like actually cooking food, right? Just as a way to sort of, uh, you know, make sure to keep the labor costs down. Um, so shortly after that, I think that is when you and I first met, well, well you had met before, but first became 
Fez was when you started working with me at White Rabbit. Correct. Yes, yes. correct. So that's you're running the kitchen at White Rabbit. Yep. Tiny little fucking spot. <laughs> yeah. 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 But and I don't. We don't need to belabor a whole bunch of that. We've had people on here who worked at White Rabbit before, um, or know about White Rabbit. But um, you're working with kind of one arm tied behind your back there with this big menu, small kitchen. Yep. But you were running the show. Was that your first time? running the entire scenario? Uh, I don't know. There was another place before that. I can't remember. Sorry, I've had so many jobs, man. Uh, maybe he just fucking lied to me. Was no, like, yeah, I've been, I've been running shows for Yeah, no. Yeah. I've, I've, I've had a lot of jobs and I've done a lot of drugs, but there was definitely another uh, location. Anyway, that, 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 that would have been my first like <laughs> prevalent one. But God, where, where, where I'm going for this is that... Um, like we don't want to do. There's been several jobs since, and we've yep. we've done we've had several late night party sessions together since then, mm-hmm. uh, trying to come out the other side of that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the, but during that time at White Rabbit is when you first started doing your signature rum. Correct. Right. Correct. So which is. Amazing, and uh, so we had ramen Mondays. Yeah, and you invented a recipe for doing a what? How would you describe your ramen? Uh, it was um, essentially just a jacked up miso soup. It was a vegetarian broth, uh, miso based, a little bit of heat, tons of added sesame into it. Um, you know, it wasn't even really like. Now that I know what I know about ramen, at that point, it was really just like a big bowl of really good miso soup. Okay. Uh, but it became incredibly popular. Like, that was one of, that was without question our best dinner of the week, and it was on Monday. Uh, we would do it Monday nights only, and that would be our, our like, the, the dinner that we had all week, including, like, Friday and Saturday. Right? Yeah. So... Became a huge success, and is that what made you like? Is that what got your head towards thinking this is maybe what I want to do as a business? Uh, it was absolutely, yeah. I was always interested in it to begin with. Like, you know, there wasn't any options in town at the time. Uh, I don't even think Kenzo even had a franchise here then. Uh, but I would go to Toronto, and whenever I was down in Toronto, I'd go to you know wherever it might have been um, to enjoy some ramen, but likely Kinton. Um, yeah, I became interested in it. I was like, you know, no one's doing this around here. Let's try doing this at Rabbit as a special because there's not much going on Mondays anywhere, right. right? So it was like everyone's looking for some sort of gimmick or, you know, something to pump them up. Taco Tuesdays are obviously like a worldwide phenomenon now. And that's basically from the fact that no one went out to eat on Tuesdays. Right. Um, so, yeah, I tried the ramen. Initially, it was like somewhat successful, like successful enough. But then it really started blowing up. Right, and you know we'd be filling up, we'd be turning like two, three times in like a 50 seat restaurant. Like it was really out of bounds. Um, so at that point, I was like, you know what? There's definitely a market for this. Um, where, when I had the initial idea to expand out into my own ramen restaurant, there was also no other options in town. So I'm like, this is a good time to sort of shine. Because like years prior to that, I had really been interested in barbecue. So I had like, you know, I bought a smoker, and this again is like the late 90s, like early 2000s. Um, 
I'd bought a smoker and I'm smoking ribs and brisket and pork belly and I'm like, oh man, like a barbecue restaurant in town here would be incredible. It would pop off. No one's doing it. Let's do it. So try, 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 try. But I'm like a young kid. I don't have any money. Like <laughs> there's no one giving me credit, right? Nice. So after a little while, a very popular barbecue restaurant opened up in town and started crushing it. Right. So I'm like, well, that dream's dead. Nice, so I'm like, you know what else could be really good is gourmet burgers. No one's doing gourmet burgers around here, right? You know? Um, so, you know, hand ground, chuck, brisket, 80-20, cooked medium rare, medium, wild assortment of toppings. No one's doing it. We should try to do that. Frat Burger opens up. Oh, yeah. Right? And then now there's a gourmet burger shop on every corner th that you live in, right? Or you live nearby. So that dream, like, went by. So when I sort of came across this ramen idea, I was like, all right, I can't have another one of these, like, decent ideas of mine go down the wayside by someone else opening it up. So put the wheels in motion. At this point, I actually had some finances and was capable of getting what I needed to open, like a brick and mortar store. Um, started going through the motions, but it took very, very long time for us to get it done. From initial planning to doors opening was just shy of three years, which is an astro astronomical time. Like, all kinds of setbacks, like, and the majority of them are my own fault. Like, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I've learned a ton so far um, to ultimately get this place opened. Yeah, now we're we were open, and then there's you know, this, the yeah, this pesky this pesky little pandemic. So yeah, yeah. I like to say that like ah, the world's against me. The world's against me. Out of the sky is falling, chicken little. It literally, is the world is against. Yeah, you. the world is against me right now. But you know what? <laughs> that being said, there's also a lot of other people out there who are in way worse situations than I am, and we're all kind of in this together. So while it's complete fucking bullshit, absolutely, there's millions of people. Tens of millions of people across the globe who are saying the exact same thing. Like, this is complete fucking bullshit. So, you know, let's rally together and get through it. And hopefully I'll be able to serve you some good ramen soon. Yeah, so that's, uh, it's just kind of funny, though. Uh, so after, this was after Rabbit had, like, you had left Rabbit, then yep. I had left Rabbit. And you were talking about opening your own business, doing the ramen thing. I was talking about opening a new business doing what became Sugar Run. Yep. Um, and you and I lived on the same floor in the same apartment building. We did. We uh, did, yeah. Yeah. Trap house, I like to call it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you still live there. I do. Uh, I do still live in the trap house. I moved out. Uh, but uh, there was a stretch where we remember what we were talking about for a while. There was a strip mall across the street from us. Yeah. And it had a place for lease for a long time. Yeah. And so it's... The funny thing about where that building is in this town, it's, uh, for those who know Kitchener, it's like essentially, it's on West Mount in between Glasgow and Gage Street. And yeah, yeah, West Mount and West Wood. You're right. So, and across from the Slovenian village. That's yeah. right. That's so right, if you yes. Go, if you go, if you start walking... Shout out Slovenian village. <laughs> <laughs> if you start walking in one direction, you walk into some cra a crazy rich neighborhood with yep. some unbelievable houses. You can just like, I would take my dog for a walk during, uh, in that area and just like gaze at the amazing houses yeah. I would never be able to live in. And then, but if you walk in the other, 
fucking direction. It's a dumpster fire. Absolutely, yeah, um, yeah. Um, Literally, there'd be several dumpsters on fire <laughs> yeah, yeah. as you strolled past. Right back crescent. Yeah, yeah. You got the hobos with the gloves, with the fingers cut out, warming their hands yeah. by the dumpsters. Yeah, but they're singing Motown too yeah. in perfect harmony. <laughs> <laughs> but, but at the time, we we used to look at that place across the street. Remember talking about opening just like a beer hole there? Yeah, we totally. just like we'd have like six taps. Yep. And six French stools. Yeah. Like, yeah. I love it. Bags you know? of chips behind the bar. I love it. Yeah, I like, love it. Like a Still fucking, a viable business operation. Right? fucking bar from the deuce. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that, that that's just a side that. But now you've opened this new. Tell me about Ramen Rebels. Uh, so Ramen Rebels is a place that I opened with my partner Ian and my partner Sangha. Um, What's the address? It's 655 Parkside Drive. So if you're familiar with it, it's Weber and Northfield in the Sobeys Plaza there. There's a new state in Maine. Uh, yeah, we just opened maybe three weeks ago. Right. And what's the website, Instagram? It's at uh, Ramen Rebels, all one word. And ramenrebels.com is the website. So what we do there is we have like very traditional Japanese style ramen. So we offer your tonkatsus, your shios, your shoyus, a miso, limited toppings on these very traditional style, but done in like a hip upbeat atmosphere. So, you know, might be Pumice and J. Cole, might be having Terminator 2 on the television, you know, a little more of like a hip ambiance than you're used to to get in these kind of flavors. Um, but it's also, it's a, it's quality Japanese authentic ramen serving that local community and then ramen heads who want to like make the pilgrimage out to North Waterloo. That's great, man. And I, 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 the unfortunate part is that you just opened and then we all had to close down, yeah. right? Yeah. So let's, uh, I don't want to bring this down on a sad note because we're going to go back to talking about some other more interesting, funny things, but like, during this time, um, and you and I were talking about this before we started recording, you talked to me about, the, like, okay, so for the struggles for me, for we've been open for about eight months, and we have a lot of products here that we've already put forth the money for that's just sitting around, right? And now... Fuck, what do we do with it? Like, we, no one knows what's going to happen now. No one knows what the future of this business is for any of us, especially in a small town like this. Certainly. Um, are we going to be able to reopen? What do we do with the product? Like, you know? Whereas your struggle is you just opened. So I think it's a. It, my, my, my struggle on my side is we're already open. People know about us. We're, people like it. We're doing well. But then we have to shut down. Now we have put forth a bunch of money to bring in product to service the people who already like it who are coming here and all of a sudden boom shut down now we we spent a bunch of money and we can't sell the product from your angle it's a little bit different in that but a slightly more unique challenge whereas you just opened um luckily you haven't put out all the overhead yet to with a bunch of products sitting around the shelves but it's kind of stunted your momentum Big time. For, for a brand new place that's open, right? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, you're absolutely right. Now, as far as like the inventory goes, um, we don't have a ton on hand. Like we're a small shop, it's 30 seats, 
so we're basically ordering, you know, proteins for our tonkatsu broth and our chasu belly, things like that. We're ordering that every day. We're making that every day and we're ordering enough to get through like one, maybe two days tops. So we did have to throw out some product, but a lot of our product, like, you know, kombu, like the seaweed that you make dashi stock with, that sits on a shelf indefinitely. You just that right yeah, there, yeah, yeah. So our inventory. Careful, someone's going to try and get in there and hoard it. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Set the alarm. Yes. Set the alarm. 150 pounds of kombu. Yeah, that'll last you, you know, three lifetimes. Um, <laughs> so ultimately, I think we're sort of in a situation like you are where, yeah, we took a bit of a loss on, you know, some of our, like, you know, fresh meats and fresh vegetables that we use, like, you know, green onions and stuff like that. Are you going to freeze that shit? No, no, we're not going to freeze any of that stuff. Like freezing meats or vegetables is never going to be a, like um, a positive outcome on the end. I'm sure lots of places are doing it. I'm not by any means judging those places right. that are doing you gotta it. Do what you got to do what you got to do at this time. But for us, like the quantities that we are ordering, we're ordering just enough at the start, again, to get through like one, two days. So we had to throw some stuff out. Yes, absolutely. Probably to throw out like, I don't know, 120 liters. Right. Of broth, you know I what I mean? I think that this is the shit that people, like, who, like, even people who understand that the restaurant bar industry is going through a really difficult time right now don't even understand that part of the shit that's just waste now. Oh, totally. Like, it's just like, do we just have to throw the fuck out yeah. Yeah. because we're never going to sell it? And, like, we're not going to be open in enough time to fucking sell this no. shit. Like, no, no. So but, but you've already bought it. We've already bought it. So, I mean, like, for places like you and I, like, our stuff is shelf-stable, right. right? Like, you have, like, a lot of, like, really amazing booze here. Well, that's, that's not going to go bad in a exactly. week, right? That's, that's right? what we're lucky is we're a booze-forward spot. But, yeah, but hoping, ho- hopefully we can reopen and sell the fucking booze. Otherwise... I'm sitting on it. Yeah, it's dead stock, right? A shit ton of rum. Yeah. So, but like that being said, think about if I had decided to open a, you know, progressive steakhouse at this point where I'm like bringing in like sides of beef that I'm dry aging myself and yada, yada, yada. And now all of a sudden, wow, we're closed for a month. Like I've literally lost thousands upon thousands of dollars of inventory. I can give that away. And sure, that's a great gesture. That doesn't help my pocketbook at all. Well, and and I have a bit of a story that uh, sort of relates to that is that we are doing here at Sugar Run like the high-end wine list that we rotate frequently. And like to catch up on the rotating of it, I had to buy a bunch of high-end wine to stock. And then, boom, closed. Yeah. So that's like a lot of outgoing money. Like, I'm, I'm talking like, you know, we go, we have a core event, so we're like buying like fucking a case of wine that goes at $45 a bottle. And now, with, with the notion that we're going to sell it, because we do, we do move that wine in this place. But then you're closed, and now you're just sitting on this stock of fucking inventory that you've paid out for, but there's no income. And yeah. it's, it's, just, it's it's scary times for shit like that. Yeah, right? like, no, absolutely. Anyway, we don't have to go down that rabbit hole, but it's important to talk about so people do get to understand, for small business owners like you and I, yep. how, like, the myriad of different ways that this affects us, right? So, and, and again, are you doing anything with gift certificates? Uh, we have, we actually just completely closed. So we got on like the early curve um, where we decided to close like, I don't know, 10 or 11, 12 days ago before it was mandated. Yeah, before, before any of that stuff. Actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. We were one of the first, we're like, you know what? Shut this down. 
let's get through it. And can I just make a brief aside to this, not to interrupt you again, but like, I remember when you told me about you closing, um, and I, and I called you and I was like, so you guys have just decided to shut down. And I think at the time that we were like, we just like, like incredibly cut back our hours to the bare minimum. And you were, then you messaged me later, and we, we, we had talked about, you know, like, why you're closing, like, don't want any backlash, and I'm like, I get that, and we, everybody wants to be safe, we all want to be safe, but this was before the strict, before we really knew what was going on. Sure, there, yeah. With, yeah. The, with, the, with how we had to be paying attention to social distancing and whatever, but before, certainly before the shutdown had happened, where it was mandatory well before that. We, you and I were both well ahead of the curve, but I was like maybe a day or two behind you, and you were messaging me and saying, look, there's people online who are like, fuck these places, they're still open. Totally. We're, we're going to remember them and put them on a goddamn list and yeah. not support them in the future. And I was like, my reaction to that was like, okay, message received, I get it, like... Can you just give me a fucking breath here? Like, do you know how hard it is as a small business owner to make this decision to shut down your whole business, lay off all your staff that you feel... Uh, your family. Not your staff, your fucking and, family, man. And you feel you feel responsible for them. This is their livelihoods as well. Like, I, I ask them to trust me to come and work for me, to have a business, and... Out of nowhere, it's like this has got to shut down. Like, yeah, we all made the right decision that you had to make for us all to be safe. But can you give me a fucking like one breath like this? Yeah. To decide before you get online and shame me for not fucking doing it yet? Like, yeah. No, social media has no time for that. No, no, no they don't have time for it. Oh, and, no. and so I, I just want to say that going forward, but like, yeah, it, it's, it's not an easy decision. Absolutely it, not. No, if you can, well, you want to avoid it at all costs, right? It's a yeah. small vocal minority. Yeah, yeah. I know, but it's but but that but the problem is the vocal minority has such a giant platform. Yes. And that is the issue. Like, people read this shit and take it to heart, and next thing you know, there's a fucking petition going around. Do not support Twitter Run, because they were seven hours late. 100%. And there's some out. girl, like, outside of your front door with a fucking pitchfork and a yeah. torch. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, burn this place to the ground, right? right? It's like, yeah. you need to reel it in. Well, they have, the good thing about Twitter Run, they have to fucking find this Yeah, place. good luck. <laughs> <laughs> they probably don't have the password, right? <laughs> anyway, that, but yeah, so, like, just, just, so for you going forward, the one thing I think that you have going for you now is that because you are in a newer place, you can almost do like start a, again, like a rebrand. Just start it. again. Yeah, yeah. just be yeah. like it's a re. It's like you got like a reset button. Yep. And hope and hopefully hoping that we all come out on the other side of this and people still want to go out and support local business small business and and still want the social aspect of going into a restaurant or a bar having good food having good drinks having good times with their friends assuming that that is the reality that we get back to you will be able to push the reset by the least right so, and i yeah. think we can both agree that well, hopefully when this is all sort of said and done there's going to be a monster influx of people coming out well so everyone's going to be cooped up for so long like bars and restaurants and nightclubs and music venues 
venues and you know theaters and everything. It's going to be overflowing because be everyone just needs to get out. There's right? a desire to get back into the community. Yeah. I hope that's the way it is. Yeah. Right? Um, and hopefully we survive to the point where that happens. Yeah. But that's the other part. So getting back to the, is there a way to buy gifts or run around? We have completely shut down right now, so we're not doing anything. We're looking at getting into some takeout and delivery options starting early next week. So we've been in contact with Uber Eats. Um, not going to speak on food delivery and anything like that, but look for us hopefully the start of next week, which is what day? Like early April. Uh, delivery, takeout, gift certificates, all of that. But up until this point, like I think for me personally, like this goes to what you were saying earlier, is like I just didn't know what to expect. Right. Right. This could be okay. We bring in a bunch of inventory and we open and we're doing takeout, we're doing delivery, and we're doing all this and that. But then the gov comes in and they're like, you know what, you got to shut down completely, indefinitely. And then we're we're sitting on a bunch of inventory where for us is highly perishable. Yeah. So I might as well just take a couple thousand bucks and just throw it in the garbage. Yeah, no, right? they do shit. I, I did a food order two days before we realized we all had to shut down. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. like and and that that's the part that I think people don't really realize. Yeah. That's just dead product that yeah. has to. Like, and, and it sucks for everybody. Yeah, and if it's not like a sealed, like, um, you know, reusable, whatever it might be, the food bank's not going to take it. Like, yeah. I'd love to be able to donate all sure. this stuff. What I'm going to do, walk in there with like 200 pounds of pork marrow bones for Tonkatsu, be like, here you go, guys. Like, yeah. be like get the shit out of here, asshole, yeah. right? <laughs> so it's, it's legitimately completely dead because there's no one that's going to use it for anything, right? It's just the nature of the business, so yeah, yeah it is what it is, it's right? A scary time for all of us. Uh, again, if like if you guys do decide to um, do get serious, we'll post it to the podcast site cool. so people cool. know. Uh, for us, again, it's info at shooterrun.ca. You just send us an e-transfer, and then we will uh, send you in uh, gifts with it again. Uh, support us now, because we're going to be reopened later. It's all good. We're all going to get to the other side of this. James, so great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank again. you for having me. Thank you, guys. Uh, thanks Thank for you coming, guys. man. Yeah. That was great. All right. And what's the website one more time? Uh, RamenRebels.com and Insta at RamenRebels. Check us out. Give us a follow. It's a dope spot. It'll be your new favorite lunch spot in North Waterloo. Thanks, James. Thanks, guys. Thanks, bud.